and it became a little bit of a slightly one of those slightly celebrity campaigns because people like Irving Welsh started to support the campaign so like at one point I was like tasked because I was a media arts student so a, a couple of times I was tasked with like taking recording footage from these events to put into a documentary I remember being backstage with Irvin Welsh and Annie Nightingale, who were both very supportive of that pal's case, and but they were they were both very worse for wear. And um, Irvin Welsh just suddenly I was talk, we were talking about that pal, and then suddenly he just stood up and said, "I'm going to perform a new, like a new piece that I've just written," and just like launched into this like <laughs> this like narrative poem. Which, and it's just, things like that it was just sort of like the way that people show support could be quite <laughs> could be quite unusual this is rebel women a podcast about history's troublemakers i'm esther freeman this week we bring you another story from the archives of the museum of youth culture if you like what you hear please subscribe for more stories from our hidden past And take a minute at the end to give us a rating and a review. Even better, share it with your friends. Shonalee Bhattacharya is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter. She is also one of the most prolific activists I've ever met, working with everyone from grassroots groups like Don't Pay, organisers of the energy bill strike, to co-chair of Momentum, a movement building popular support for socialist ideas and policies. Her writing and her activism are linked through themes of anti-racism and anti-imperialism. Born in Leicester in 1978, her parents were first-generation migrants from West Bengal. Her father was a lecturer in economics at Leicester University, and her mum was a social worker. Both experienced racism at work, although it was more visceral for her mother as she worked on the front line. But it wasn't only this that created Shonali's view of the world. It also came from being Bengali. Bengali culture is, is very steeped in left politics and in the arts. It's just something that is very defines Bengali culture. You know, it's not that unusual for our family to be very rooted in socialists, communists, you know, sort of discussion thinking. And obviously as a as Bengali socialists, you're also there's innately an anti-imperialism to that because obviously mum and dad actually lived through sort of independence as children. Like, like, so uh, what I'm trying to say is that it, it, it was quite normal for me to sort of like hear like left ideas and ideas around radical change. And that wasn't there was nothing taboo about, around that. Like I know some people grow up with, you know, the idea that politics is impolite. Um, that's something certainly something that's, that's always been quite alien to me. Although Leicester is known for its large Asian population, it's dominated by Gujarati and Punjabi communities. As a Bengali family, they were the minority and often felt like outsiders. She struggled at school with vocally racist teachers who could be quite violent. So, like, so like I say, like Leicester is a very diverse city. It has a large Asian population, but I would say that because I went to really quite a racist school, I left that racist school in 92 and I went on to sixth form and sixth form was much better. Like the teachers were... There, there, there was no racism, like overt racism in the way that I'd experienced in those, those years. But it does have a formative influence upon you. And I think that um, you internalise a lot, I guess. So I think I had quite a level of internalised sort of like racism and probably quite low confidence in lots of ways, like on a personal level. Uh, I think I was unusually quite 
strident in my political views. That was where I felt more confident than I did on, a, on an individual basis. I was able to put forward positions in a way that I think that the teachers and stuff didn't like. I still got into quite a lot of arguments, actually. At A-level, she studied politics, where she met a teacher who became a big influence. I had a fantastic teacher, like really one of... Like, you know, you always have one teacher. He was that teacher, like really brilliantly just engaging and, and, and brilliant and sound and had really good politics as well. Um, so it was the first time I'd sort of met a grown-up outside of my family who I really felt like I could talk politics to. You know, it really mattered to me what he thought about things and it really mattered to me that he... Um, had a great deal of respect for my opinions. I actually switched from a, a, an A-level that I was really not enjoying to his class and it was like the best, one of the really good decisions I made at that age. Despite all this political energy, there weren't many places to channel it. One of Shonali's earliest causes was the environment. While she became a member of Friends of the Earth, there weren't any local groups, so she found other creative ways to make her voice heard. Definitely was not an environmental movement in Leicester. <laughs> I can say there was not any groups I could be part of. Like looking back, I think I wanted to do stuff, but I didn't. There wasn't. I didn't know how to do stuff when I was quite young, and there was no outlet for me to do anything. I wouldn't even call it activism because I didn't engage. There was nothing for me to engage in. <laughs> but I'd get like I was a member of Friends of the Earth. I'd get all the magazines and stuff, and I'd make my own posters. I probably talked everyone's ear off about it, but. That was sort of like that. That really shaped like what how how I sort of felt about the world at that stage, and felt really anxious about it, and wanted to do something. She would later seek space within the Anti-Nazi League, which was launched in 1977 by the Socialist Worker Party or SWP, and relaunched in 1992. But one of the things I did off my own back, which was not so awesome, but I was only young, was uh, got involved in the Anti-Nazi League in Leicester. Because it was very obviously like, well, I'm an anti-racist and this is the Anti-Nazi League. Um, and so I did like weather at quite a young age, which I guess is how it works, the full-on like tedium of SWP organising. Um, so I did like try to go to some meetings and like ran some stalls and was, was really ha- had some really awful racial abuse on those stalls. I'm looking back, was not protected or defended in any way mm. by some of the people. You should have known better. It was her sister, older by 10 years, who became her key source of political inspiration. Her sister was involved in trade union and international activism, but it was her campaigning against police brutality and deaths in custody that mobilised Shonnelly. So those were like family-led campaigns, but obviously um, with a, a great deal of support from like grassroots activists, I'd say. And that's where a lot of the like, anti-racist, the effect, the more effective anti-racist organising was going on. The key campaign that I guess started to take up more of our time was the Free Sat Palvan campaign. In November 1986, Satpal, then 20, went with two friends for a meal at the Sky Blue Indian restaurant in Birmingham. Also in the restaurant were a group of six white people who hurled racist abuse at the waiters and complained about the Asian music. Satpal responded by asking for the music to be turned up. One of the men, Stuart Pearce, came at Satpal with a broken glass, stabbing him in the face. Satpal drew a short blade penknife. In the ensuing struggle, Pierce sustained a number of stab wounds. He was taken to hospital where he allegedly was too drunk and abusive to be treated. He later died of his wounds. Satpol claimed he acted in self-defence and in the context of a racially divided Birmingham, his actions were understandable. 
Yet after wrongly reading a pathologist's report, his barrister said the self-defence plea would not stand. In court, his witnesses were unable to give evidence as translators were not employed, and Satpal was convicted of murder. He was wrongly told he had no grounds for appeal. So that campaign started off as, like a lot of those miscarriages of justice and police brutality campaigns, as a family-led campaign. And my sister got involved. Her partner was quite heavily involved. Like the way that these things start, like, you know, leaflets, trying to like get people to understand what happened, pictures of Satpal, local press, demos and stuff. It started to take off because it became much more innovative than that in that the campaign started to organise within gigs. And I think maybe even club nights. Yeah, club nights and gigs. That just happened, yeah, hadn't really happened before. That started to build a lot of momentum behind that campaign amongst younger people, particularly younger people who. And I think what was really good and exciting about that campaign is uh, it's something that I think that should continue to be thought of as a way to sort of build the movement is to, yeah, make the political every day, make the political perfectly normal and to basically take campaigns to people rather than expecting people to come to campaigns. The campaign coincided with the introduction of the Criminal Justice Bill, which banned unlicensed raves. These were characterised by what politicians called, quote, music with repetitive beats. This direct attack on youth culture drove many young people into politics for the first time. The Free Sat Power campaign tapped into this mood of discontent. The first connection was through Asian Dub Foundation, so they're also, they're like British Bengali, they're young. Um, they were a great band. And I think that was the initial contact was like, can we have a stall at your gig? And they mm-hmm. said yes. And I think that that was like, it was fairly like low key at first. And that would have been like the audience probably would have been fairly up to speed, probably with that pal. But then they started to get quite big. I was going to say, was that they were, I seem to remember them being a bit of a sort of crossover band that they had sort of um, white and Asian audiences. Is that correct to describe? Yeah, yeah. And I think ultimately their their audience probably ended up being quite white. You know, they were like a proper band that used to just like practice in garages and stuff and uh, like fair play to them. Like they did, they did properly break through and they didn't really make any, they didn't make any concessions on that. They broke through on their own terms. My sister's partner would run the stall and, and actually ended up sort of like going on tour with them just to run the oh, stall. Okay. It's quite unusual in lots of ways, but like, you know, he wasn't a roadie or anything. He'd be there to, to run the free sat pal stall. So there'd always be a free sat pal stall at, at Asian mm. Asian gigs. And it was like quite, you know, you know, like if you go to a political meeting, there'll always be stalls with leaflets and like sometimes merchandise yeah. books and stuff, but it became a, a key feature that they, the free sat pastor would always be at their gigs. I think that was really important and really useful to sort of just like normalise that. They were on a national tour of Primal Scream, and Primal Scream also, like Awesome, also have really great politics, and they were very supportive as well. I don't know if Asian Dead Foundation said, well, if we're coming on tour with you, the free sat pal RAM store has to come as well. Mm. I don't know how exactly that was agreed, but... Um, that then raised the profile of the campaign further because there was always a free sat pile stored at those gigs. This felt natural territory for Shonali, who was into club culture. In Leicester, she went to Indian techno clubs. After moving to Surrey to study, she'd take the train into London with her partner and go to places like The End and The Blue Note. So I'd be like at these clubs 
as a punter, but also as a volunteer for the Free South Power campaign. And my and often my job is like to go and collect signatures for the for the petition calling for um, his case to be to be reviewed. I'd be dressed up like I was. A, I was also a kid who really liked to dress up to go out. <laughs> be like dressed up with like a clipboard. So like I found like the people queuing up for like their coats at the end of the night. That was a good time to get people or people queuing up for the toilets. I sort of learned how to like get people when they couldn't move would be having like these conversations obviously people off their faces like (laughs) really very drunk and worse for aware people but would be sort of like having like conversations with them about about satpal but also about the nature of the criminal justice system and the you know the nature of like systemic racism like in the in these sort of like chats in these clubs and um and like we got a lot like a lot of support and brought in a lot of support from people who probably never would have thought about it. In 1997, Asian Dub Foundation released their single, Free Sat Pal Ram. The campaign went to a whole new level. It gained support from writers and comedians like Irvin Welsh and Sean Hughes. So there was quite a lot of support and then like ADF released a, a single called Free Sat Pal Ram, which I think was their biggest, probably their biggest single. They got like Top of the Pops and stuff. It's another era, this, like when you're still getting to Top, when Top of the Pops existed. In lots of ways, it really helped a lot. It also like really revealed the relationship between that slightly, like like people who aren't activists, people who are essentially like, you know, artists and celebrities. That world's very different to like grassroots activist world. So a lot of the donkey work was still being done by grassroots activists who were working really, really hard. You know how grueling it can be, like especially when you're essentially taking on the police and the CPS. I think that I do think like some resentment started to grow. In 2002, Satpal was finally released on parole. It did, like it definitely had a it had a really positive impact upon the campaign that involvement, and and Satpal was released. So Satpal was released into a bizarrely like, you know, sort of celebrity filled world of, of people mm. who had supported him, and actually, that probably wasn't very good for him. At that point, I think probably he'd had like years in prison. God knows what he'd gone through in prison. Probably just needed to come out and be with friends and family. But you can imagine how appealing and how seductive it must have been to come out and basically sort of be a bit of a name I don't think he had the grounding for that and so I think that's where like like I say like the tension between sort of those grassroots activists a lot of whom were his friends and people who had done had also done a lot to help him get released but who were were living a very different lifestyle I think that's where the tension started to really become apparent and so he, he was freed but I think that the circumstances around his sort of I guess rehabilitation into the you know the normal world which is sort of what you know something we don't think about very much like when you're trying to when you're trying to resolve a miscarriage of justice it's all about the win right and we so mm-hmm. rarely get a win and we got a win he was released like those couple of years after he was released i think that there was like a lot of the worry about him didn't really go away The following year, British troops invaded Iraq and Sean Lee's activism was set in a new direction. It was already extremely disquieted by the invasion of Afghanistan. I was working at, um, I moved to London and I was working as a, working at a dot-com. So extremely apolitical place full of very right-wing people 
probably thought that they were really liberal. But there was an email going around which purported to be from an Afghan woman who was facing horrendous like treatment in Afghanistan. I look back at that, that now, I think, why was that going around at that time? That was a weird thing to be getting in my inbox. And it was just before the invasion of, of Afghanistan. Of course, there was a lot of pseudo-feminist cover for that invasion. She joined the Stop the War Coalition, whose campaigning escalated as public anger grew. I'd see my, definitely see my sister at every demo, but I was doing a lot of stuff much more independently, and um, I'd say that that was characterised by protesting and organising against the Labour government, like so many of us. But definitely, like, my thinking, like, for that was very much rooted in, like, the anti-imperialism that I'd grown up with, had a, quite a visceral response to the idea of another occupation. Like, they couldn't, like, had a... I would just remember feeling like we can't allow there to be any more occupation, like, in a slightly naive way. Like, we must stop this occupation. We haven't even resolved all those other ones. <laughs> yeah. There can't be another one. By now, Shonley was living in Brixton in South London and taking on more formal roles. I moved to Brixton and that was where I started to like properly like have like roles. I'd be like I had had like a role in our local Stop the War branch. I was secretary for like our local Palestine Solidarity campaign branch for ages. That was where most of my energies were put, like organising a lot of what I guess what I learned was was at that time, like how to you know, how to organise, basically, like, you know, we'd have, like, regular street stalls, we'd have regular meetings, we were trying to do stuff that would be, like, broaden support, like, things like pub quizzes and gigs and, like, things like that, film screenings and stuff. So, yeah, that's sort of where I became really, like, embedded in, I guess, like, a left organising culture. Someone else I interviewed talked, uh, used this phrase, which I thought was rather nice. She said, that was the moment I stopped being just a, a participant to becoming an organiser, meaning that she'd been very active before, but that she'd started to take on an organising role and getting much more embedded. But is that, is this phase that for you? Yes. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 And sort of against my best, like my, in, my instincts, I'm afraid, are always to avoid responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing a very good job of that. I'm really shit at it. Um, <laughs> but like my my base instinct, I think I've grown out. Of it, but definitely, I would say at that age, my my instincts were to avoid meetings and to avoid responsibility. Uh, yeah, I didn't manage to do either of those things. I find it quite easy to like talk to people. I find it quite easy to like engage with like like people on on like I say, particularly about politics, like. Sometimes the interpersonal stuff I find quite difficult, but um, I, I feel quite comfortable, you know, organising about these things. I was, I was, had to build up confidence to do some of the public-facing stuff, particularly around Palestine solidarity. Like it can be, it, it is still like can be, depending where you're doing that stuff, can be very. You can face a great deal of hostility, organising around Palestine, um, and we definitely we got a lot of, not a lot of, but we routinely faced harassment and abuse for campaigning um, for Palestine solidarity. And as someone who's like, you know, I'm a brown, I'm a brown person, you know, a lot, loads of people involved in Palestine solidarity are Jewish. Um, there's not very many Palestinians. There wasn't very many in our group anyway. Right. Um, there's like maybe like one or two Palestinian, British Palestinian people. 
um, and like a and like a great deal of like lefty Jewish people who who were really committed and had been organising around Palestine for years, like a lot of retired teachers. So I'd faced like I felt like I was often like the brunt of it, got the brunt of any intimidation, harassment, some like just some like all the conspiracy theories. I'd be told I was an agent for Iran, and then equally like in Brixton there is a like a evangelical Christian sort of community as well. So we'd be told that we were you know defying God's you know, to find God's, God's work. And so there'd be different kinds of abuse and different kinds of intimidation. And, and obviously any public facing work, like, as you know, you, 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 you might get, you know, you'll get intimidation and harassment anyway, but it was quite, it was quite um, pointed. The Stop the War campaign was considerably easier as there was broad support at that time. So there's much, much more broad agreement around Iraq and around Afghanistan. So it, it sort of felt a bit more of a breeze to sort of do uh, public-facing work, especially at that time. You know, I think there were points there where I really actually felt quite proud to be British, which doesn't happen very often. Okay. You know, like I remember being on the Tube. Um, I just hadn't been in London that long, but I was on the Tube and I was still... You can tell I wasn't in London that long because I still talk to people on the Tube. <laughs> uh, and there was, some, there was a small group of American squaddies yeah, one of those bit flirty started talking to us. That's how we found out they were American squaddies. And he started to say, like, he was sort of saying that he was having a really hard time because he'd, he'd go out for, like, a drink and he'd obviously want to go on the pool. But all the British girls were just, when they found out what he did, they call him baby killer. And I was like, so I was sympathetic to him as an individual, but obviously not at all sympathetic in, like, in a broader sense. And... um I would just remember at that point being like feeling like like feeling like yeah there's like a there's quite a movement against this war um and there's there seems to be an understanding about what it means that's quite interesting so you you take your british pride from well again the grassroots rather than like I, I just find it interesting that when our country was doing some stuff which I think most of us feel quite shameful about you were able to take this sense of pride from what was happening at a grassroots level well, you know, you need to think, as a, like a second-generation migrant, I very rarely feel responsible for what the British government are doing. OK. I've never lived under a government who I felt were acting in my interests. Um, and I've certainly never been responsible for a government. I don't think I'd be... I, I, think, I can't remember if I... I think I did vote Blair in the end. Although it was, it was with a very... Even that first time. And I was like, I was like, so right. But I was saying to people who should have known better... He's not a good person, you know. Like, we didn't know at that point, obviously, that he was going to go and bomb everywhere. Like, that idea came to him a little bit later. But definitely, I, you know, I was saying to people, he's not, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to privatise everything. You know, that sense of great hope that some, like, I guess a lot of liberals felt. I, ne- I never had that. Um, so, yeah, no, definitely, like, my sense of pride comes from collective resistance amongst British people. That's what, you know, that's what makes me feel hopeful. Shonalee now lives in Walthamstow in East London with her husband and two children. Although life has moved on, her politics haven't changed. As a young person, she was dissatisfied with party politics. She could see it was the seat of power, but had little faith in it changing anything in a meaningful way, especially for minority groups. I never have had a belief in the ability of parliamentary politics to change things. And And I do feel like that has been you know, sort of vindicated it's like with Corbyn we had a chance but nothing was ever going to change without a grassroots movement to support him 
that's where things change. You know, I think British Chef has far too much focus on parliamentary politics and I think it is actually a real distraction and I think it could be an obstacle to change. is working towards setting up a permanent space in Birmingham, a national museum telling the story of youth culture in Britain. While we wait for that to be completed, you can visit their current exhibition, Growing Up in Britain, A Hundred Years of Teenage Kicks, which is on until the 12th of February 2023 at the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum in Coventry. If you have stories you want to submit to the Museum of Youth Culture, see the show notes for a link to their website. You can also find them on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Join us next time on Rebel Women for more stories of rebellious youth.